Thank you, Colin. You can see the, um, where the reading is behind me. So page 114 of your church Bibles, you want to follow along. And it's a split reading, so from verse 3 to verse 8, and then from verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then down to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first roots of those who have fallen asleep. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Good to see you all. start clocks and all that sort of thing. Just apologies if I seem a little bit uh, distracted this morning. Um, Technology once again is letting me down and so I have blank screen in front of me where I should have everything that's appearing for for you here. So I might turn around at a few points uh, and look at it but hopefully we can make it work okay. I want to speak to you today about the whole topic of hope. If Easter is about anything you have to agree uh, it is about hope. And I'd suggest that as people, as human beings, we are, we're hardwired for hope, yes? To actually lose hope can actually have devastating effects uh, on us as people. Now, there's a fellow uh, by the name of Martin Seligman who's uh, a prophet of a movement called the Positive Psychology Movement. Has anyone come across Martin Seligman before? He's a bit of a name, he's out there. If you're in education, you've probably been forced to go through his seminars and all this sort of things. Seligman, uh, he tells us that hope is essential. He's written a little book called Flourish, and in that book, Uh, He identifies 24 key strengths, of which one is hope, optimism, and future-mindedness. Let me read to you. This is describing this characteristic, this signature strength of hope. You expect the best in the future, and you plan and work in order to achieve it. Hope, optimism, and future-mindedness are a family of strengths 
that represent a positive stand towards the future. Expecting good events will occur, feeling that they will ensure if you try hard, and planning for the future, sustain good cheer in the here and the now, and they galvanize a goal-directed life. So you got it? Hope, expecting that good events will occur, feeling that they will ensure if you try hard, and planning for the future. These things sustain good cheer in the here and now and galvanize a goal-directed life. I used to work with someone who uh, had above their desk a picture and uh, it said uh, underneath, why is predicting the future so hard uh, when all my worst fears come true? Uh, A little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit ironic. But Seligman's telling us we've just got to believe, we've just got to work hard enough to cultivate this hope. And that works for the short term, doesn't it? It works for the little stuff. But in the big picture, can we get that control? This is Leo Tolstoy, the the Russian novelist, who went through a crisis in his middle life. He says this, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? I think Seligman's approach is great for the little stuff. But it's no help when it comes to the big stuff. What reason can we find to hope in the face of death? What reason can we find to hope in the face of the evil and the suffering that pervades so much of our world? If you live in a nice, secure part of the world like we do, with all the advantages that we enjoy for a little time, Seligman's approach might work. But what foundation can we build hope upon that's more than just think happy thoughts? You know, try hard enough. You know, if I think the right things and I cultivate the right, uh, the right mindset, things will work out for me. Is there something bigger? Christians celebrate hope at Easter, Yes especially at Easter, hope for this life, a hope that conquers the grave, a personal hope, but also a cosmic hope, a hope that is, embraces the whole of our world. And so you have to actually ask, are we actually the biggest April Fools of the lot? But before we explore that, I want to suggest this morning that if you're here, maybe you've come along, you think, oh, I should... I should come along to church today, you know, it's Easter Sunday, or someone's dragged you along, maybe you don't really want to be here. Can I suggest, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, I think you want to believe in the resurrection. If you care about justice for the poor, if you care about our environment, and you want to see it renewed and restored, if you care about alleviating hunger, you want the resurrection of Jesus Christ guy by the name of Tom Wright said this. He said, Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. So if you're here exploring Easter, exploring the resurrection, it's great that you're here. Can I encourage you to ask those questions, to dig deep in? We're going to explore hope and we're going to explore whether Christians are the biggest fools of them all. We've got uh, three headings, Hope's Foundation, Hope's Transformation, and Hope's Invitation. And all of this hope stands upon the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Now, Jeff read for us out of 1 Corinthians 15. He read for us the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' early messengers, uh, writing to a church that he had planted in a place, a Roman city called Corinth, uh, the Greek city called Corinth, sorry. Got to get my geography right. Uh, and what we find there is that he's writing to a church that has lost faith in the resurrection. Now, one thing we can't do this morning is look at them and say, they were primitive people. You know, people back there accepted myths like this, but we in the modern age, we don't, we don't believe in resurrections. You know, can I suggest they had as many questions, and 1 Corinthians 15 shows that to us. They had as many doubts as we might have ourselves. They were happy with the idea of life after death. But for the Greeks, for the Greeks, salvation and life after death was being liberated from the physical body. It was much more akin to what we see in Star Wars. You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, glowing force nimbus kind of stuff. That's, that's what the Greeks saw as salvation. For the Jews, they were happy with a bodily physical resurrection but just not yet. It was going to happen at the end of time when God restored all things. So when the Christian messengers got out there and started proclaiming that Jesus Christ was risen, the Greeks, physical, the Jews, but not yet, they were debating, they were disputing just as much as our culture. Our culture, maybe we wrestle with the whole fact of life beyond this life. Life that continues after death. But Paul's answers to them, they give us answers to our question. Because he's there, and if you've got your Bibles open, Paul builds a case for the resurrection. And as he addresses the whole question of a physical resurrection, he addresses the whole question of the reality of resurrection and the foundation for hope. Verse 3, chapter 15. He says, What I received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for sins, according to the Scriptures. Christ died, verse 4, that he was buried. Christ was buried in a tomb by Joseph and co. Uh, he was buried and on the third day he was raised according to the scriptures. And then he appeared. He appeared to a whole range of people. He appeared to people individually. He appeared to people in groups, sometimes more than 500 at one time. Paul is saying, Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus, the physical resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose, Jesus appeared. And he's prepared to say the whole of Christianity stands or falls on this fact being history. If you want to blow Christianity out of the water, if you want an excuse to walk away and say, it's rubbish, it's not for me, it's a waste of time, this is the point. Paul comes in and says, if you can disprove the resurrection, the whole thing is a waste of time. He, he unpacks it for us. Look, verse 14, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Now, you don't know how hard it is for a preacher to say that. 
Our preaching is useless. If Christ is dead in the grave, you're wasting your time listening to me as they were wasting their time listening to Paul. He goes on, verse 15, he says, more than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God. We're telling lies about God. He goes on. He actually says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You're pretending that you've been forgiven. You're pretending that Stephen's experiment, you know, what it represented actually is real. You're pretending it's a figment of your imagination. If Christ is dead in the ground, there's no forgiveness and you stand under accusation. He goes on. Verse 18, he says, those who have fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ, they're lost. There's no hope. You can't speak of, oh, they're in a better place. Paul says, if Jesus, if Jesus hasn't been raised, there is no better place for them. They have been lost. And he actually says, then, if we, in verse 9, if for this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. We are the biggest April fools of them all. Paul tells us it happened, it's history, or you may as well walk away. You may as well give up and walk away. But we find that Paul is confident. Verse 20. Oop. There we have Mary Poppins. That's me jumping over my notes here and saying, don't worry about Mary Poppins. I don't know why she's there. <laughs> I don't know why she's there. This is, this is when I can't see what's actually happening here. This fellow is a Christian theologian, but I think historians would agree with him. He said, the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitnesses really existed the first christian evangelistic sermon was preached 50 days after the events 50 days okay what do you do all those witnesses are around if the body is still in the tomb it's not hard to produce evidence that they're speaking rubbish this fellow is saying the early christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection publicly and successfully this is both the empty tomb if you just had the empty tomb you've just done a really good job of hiding the body okay no matter how you got your hands on it and there's questions about that you've done a really good job but then there are hundreds of people hundreds of people standing up and saying this man dead buried we have seen him we've spoken with him we've eaten with him we've touched him he is risen. But what about us? What would the Apostle Paul say to us? Because we can't go and find those witnesses. We can't go and look at the empty tomb. Christians kind of think they kind of sort of maybe know where it is. But you know what? Jesus isn't there. and We're not even sure it's the right place. What can we do? What would Paul actually say to us? Well, we do have the testimony of the eyewitnesses. The events that Paul writes down in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he's only writing about 15 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is not ancient history from the perspective we have writings that close. We have their testimony. We have guys like the Apostle Paul standing in front of 
the Roman governor. And what does he appeal to? Let me read to you from Acts 25. Paul's there. He's been dragged in before the Roman governor, a guy by the name of Festus. There's not enough Festus in the world, is there? Uh, And uh, King Agrippa, the king of the Jews, is there as well. And he's making his case about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at one point, uh, the Roman governor shouts at him. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you insane. And what does Paul answer? He says this. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Paul has no problem in standing in front of Roman governors, kings of the Jewish people and saying, you know what I'm talking about because it happened here. You know what I'm talking about. And modern historians look at it. This fellow is by a Jewish, a Jewish uh, historian. Uh, his name is uh, Pinas Lapidi. I don't even know how to say that. I don't know why I bothered. Uh, but anyway, this guy is not a Christian. He's not a Christian, but he is a Jewish historian who looked at the events of the resurrection. And he said, how was it possible... How was it possible that his disciples, who by no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence or strength of faith, were able to begin their victorious march of conversion? In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of the Easter faith. Thus, according to my opinion... The resurrection belongs to the category of the truly real. Paul says our hope stands on whether this is history. Whether what we celebrate today is not just some nice figment of our imagination, but actual historical events. And if you're here this morning and you're still kind of, I'm not convinced. Can I just say... People often say to Christians, you guys have got to prove to me that Jesus rose. Can I say to you, you've got to explain to me how the church ever got off the ground. If Jesus is in the tomb and they're standing up preaching a lie, why did they go and die for that testimony? Find an explanation that has eluded the great minds of those who've opposed Christianity. Find an explanation that makes better sense. Or do you recognise, as this guy did, that it actually is the most logical and rational thing that Jesus Christ rose? They're the facts. That's history. So what does it mean? It means that hope transformed. Back then, if you know the story, you, you know that these cowed, these scared these frail human beings these 11 men they turned the world on its head 
300 years after they started preaching, more than one third of the entire Roman Empire declared that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. So much so that the Emperor Constantine acknowledged the fact and declared Christianity to be the religion of the Roman Empire. How did those scared, frail, afraid human beings do that? How did they turn the world on its head? Why were they prepared to die for something that they would have known whether it was true or not? The French mathematician Blaise Pascal said this, excluded its, uh, its bluntness. He said, I prefer witnesses who get their throats cut. If you're prepared to die for your testimony, that means something. That means something. The apostles died for their testimony. What about the apostle Paul? Verse 9, back in chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul here describes himself as the least of the apostles. He does not even deserve to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. Paul wielded the power of religion and state against the church. He persecuted and murdered people who declared that Jesus had risen. How does he become a proclaimer? How does he even deal with that on a personal level? How do you deal with something that changes your life that big? How do you, how do you deal with your past? If you've been following the news, you know there's some kind of scandal in the Australian cricket team at the moment. Um, but I read this morning uh, that uh, Mrs. Warner blames herself for the whole thing because of her past indiscretions. And she's there in tears along with all the others. And I'm not having a go at her. But you see the effects of someone's past. Some of us know that. How does Paul, persecutor, murderer, get to the point where he can stand up and declare this? Here's a trustworthy saying. He writes to Timothy that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. How can he face himself, the persecutor, the murderer? Because he knows that his hope is real. He knows that Christ Jesus, as verse 3 tells us, died on a cross for our sins. He knew God's grace to him, his undeserved mercy. And that grace dealt with guilt and shame, it healed him, it empowered him, it motivated him to spend the rest of his days declaring the gospel that he opposed. Hope transforms. Not just then, but also now. Think about it. Paul writes in another place, he says, I do not want you to grieve about those who've died as those who have no hope. Christian hope changes the way we deal with death, the day we deal with loss, the day, way we deal with sickness, because we know this is not the final word. 
Christian hope deals with the questions of purpose. How do I know that my life actually has meaning? It has something beyond what Tolstoy saw, that inevitable death that is coming. Well, the Bible teaches us that our hope in the Lord, our work, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not empty. It will stand in him. Do you look at the paper and you see what is happening in the world? The violence, the oppression, the injustice, the sickness, the poverty, the famine. If you cry out, why? How long? We have a hope that answers that, that God will set it straight. Fear. Fear can cripple people. It can make us small. But at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, he taunts death. Where, O oh death, is your victory? One of the privileges I have is I get sometimes to be with people as they are preparing to die or dying. And I remember being with one man, and it seemed that he was no longer looking at us, but he seemed to be focusing through the roof, beyond the room. And he was a man at peace. And what was he saying? Glory. Glory. I don't know what he was saying. I like to think that at that point... The curtain between this world and the next was being drawn back for him. And Theo was seeing what he was being welcomed into. There was no fear. There was just that expectation. Christian hope trumps fear. The English poet George Herbert said, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener he plants us and we spring again to new life so our hope our hope is real our hope is historical and it's not just dead facts it's hope that transforms and it's also hope that invites what we celebrate today, what Christians around the world are celebrating today is the validation that God the Father made of Jesus. Paul says, if he didn't rise, don't bother with Christianity. You're wasting your time here. Walk away. If he didn't rise, don't bother with Christianity. But if he did, if Jesus did rise... As countless witnesses testified and still testify. As countless lives transform. If Jesus did rise from the dead, he is who he said he is. And he did what he said he did. The Apostle Paul and countless others proclaimed what Christians, what the scriptures talk about as the gospel. The good news, the proclamation, the declaration of what God has achieved for us. The Christian gospel, the good news at the heart of our faith, is about what God accomplished that Easter 
30 odd AD. Telling you what God has done for you. Not what you must do for him. It's an offer though. Like any news, like any fact. It asks us to respond. It asks us, it offers hope to us and asks us to receive it. It offers grace to us and asks us to welcome it. It offers forgiveness and it asks us to receive it. Have you? Because this gospel, this death and resurrection, this historical fact, it gives hope not just personally, that our lives matter, our lives have future, our lives have hope. But it offers hope for our world that death and evil will not have the last word. Because it is the Son of God who had the last word on the cross as he bore the consequence of our sins. His last words, it is finished completed job done sin paid death defeated it's the father who had the last word as he raised the son in triumph on the third day that is what we celebrate that is what we rejoice in that is what we sing about that is what we pray about that is what is offered freely in the gospel are christians the greatest fools i don't think so i think there is so much evidence there is so much reason to build your life on this foundation to build your hope on this foundation i think you'd be a fool to reject it but maybe you've still got questions it's very hard in a short sermon to answer all those questions. Even in a long sermon, it's hard. Um, Collins mentioned, for the next four Sunday nights after this one, next door uh, at the YMCA, we're running the life course. If you've got questions, if you've got friends who've got questions, if you've got friends who've got family who've got questions, if you know anyone who needs to come to grips with what happened and what it means, what we celebrate, the hope that is offered. This is a great place to be. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, soften hearts, open eyes, open our ears, help our minds and our hearts to work out the true implications of what it is that you have done for us. The hope that is ours, the hope that can never be shaken, the hope that death cannot defeat, that we have a life that is imperishable because the Son of God rose. Father, I pray for any here this morning who are still wrestling with what those facts mean, that you would help them. Help them to work that out. Lead them to see what so many others have seen. That Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and invites us to put our hope and our trust in him. And Father, we pray, we pray this in his most precious name. Amen.